She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Kolchek the Night Stalker. Episode 13. Primal Scream. In this episode, when a biologist working for an oil drilling company in the Arctic is killed, Kolchek thinks more is going on than everyone is saying. When more brutal deaths occur, sources are silenced, and a report that the killer is a gorilla becomes the official story, Kolchek wonders if the killer is neither ape nor man, but something in between. Something that was discovered deep under the Arctic ice. (gasps) Was it a worm? Oh, might be. Sounds familiar. Yeah, that would be that would be bad. This episode was written by Bill S. Ballinger and David Chase. It was directed by Robert Shearer. Its original air date was Friday, January 17th, 1975 at 8 p.m. Yay. I mean not yay, but because that's the bad time slot for the cold checks. Yeah. It's a good time slot, but not if you're up against other shows that are more popular yeah so we have our opening theme sequence per usual and then we open and once again kolchek has got his recorder this time he's kind of leaning up against a stone wall we don't really see we only get kind of like a headshot from him and then his he's a little bit sweaty and he has like some bloody scratches on the side of his face as we clicks his recorder He says, during World War II, close to this very spot, science bore a child that changed the course of human relations and to this day threatens to end human history. It was called, innocuously enough, the Manhattan Project. And it grew into the terror we have all come to know as the hydrogen bomb. But this year, only a stone's throw from here, science delivered a new child. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. So we see a man and he's walking through some doors that are labeled laboratory and it is November 8th, 1220 AM. Dr. Jules Kopanek, PhD in experimental biology and co-director of related research at Oceanic International Oil Corporation. He has been away from the lab for about a month and he has just returned from a conference in Helsinki. He came to the lab directly from the airport even though he's only carrying a really small bag, which is weird. But he is looking through some documents on his desk, and then he hears a sound inside a walk-in freezer in the lab. So he goes over, and he opens the door. Wah! He's attacked by a sort of ape-man. And the attack continues, and we freeze frame on the ape-man as he's flinging across the lab and onto the floor. And then the screen fades to black. And then we go to commercial. And you know what commercial means. Uh-oh. So under the title credits, we get a night scene of Kolchek driving through the city. And I'm pretty sure this is reused footage. And I think we're going to see it again in future episodes, too. I think it showed up one or two episodes ago. But it's 7 a.m. And Kolchek was heading home from a late supper when he heard a call over the police radio. We see Kolchek and he's passing through the same doors that are labeled laboratory that we just saw. But he doesn't walk into a dark, quiet lab. Places full of police and reporters. Police Captain Maurice Molnar is talking to several reporters, and Kolchek asked the photographer what's going on. 
Molnar is giving them the details, but won't let them photograph the body. So Kolchak is like, hey, why would you let us photograph the body? And Molnar is like, I'd rather deal with details, which is why I'm taking the time to talk to you. If that's okay with you, Kolchak, can I continue? And Kolchak's like, sure. So, and then Kolchak is like, I heard it was a messy death, to which Molnar replies, ever see one that wasn't? (laughs) Yeah, he's not wrong. So the body's still on the scene and it's wrapped on a gurney and it's ready to be wheeled out. So Kolchak just kind of walks over and pulls up the blanket. And then he's like, where's the arm? And Molnar rushes over and is like, gone, like both of yours are going to be if you don't keep your hands off things. And the photographer Kolchak had been talking to asked if it was severed and like, is like, where is it? And Kolchak says it looks a lot more like it was pulled out of the socket, like an old turkey leg. So all the reporters kind of go nuts. They're like, whoa. Yeah, missing an that's arm. That's a huge whoa. piece of information. Yeah. yeah. It's like, so Molnar says that Dr. Kopanek was murdered and badly beaten. They don't have any suspects and the coroner's report will be made available to them later today. Kolchak again asks where the arm is and Molnar's like, we don't know. And Kolchak asks how the killers got access to the lab without being seen. Molnar's like, no comment. Kolchak asks about a motive, any ideas, no comment. Kolchak says, no comment, no ideas. The other reporters all walk away, figuring they're not going to be getting anything else. But Kolchak, you know, doesn't give up very easily. So he stays and he starts looking around and he enters the open freezer, which is pretty warm. So he notices that it's not really a freezer anymore and it doesn't smell very good in there. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a bunch of frozen biology experiments that are now thought out and rotting. So, of course, Mm, it doesn't smell very good. Yeah. And on a shelf are several closed metal containers. But Kolchak sees a single container on the floor with the lid off and some ice and water residue spilled out. But otherwise, it's empty. And then, of course, he takes photos. Of course. So, Mulder comes in and he tells Kolchak to get out of there. And Kolchak's like, is this supposed to be a freezer? And Mulder's like, yeah, but it's out of order. And Kolchak says, it's warm and humid and it stinks. And Molnar's like, maybe it's your undershirt, Kolchak. And Kolchak's like, maybe it's your jokes. And he leaves. So it is impossible for this to have been planned because time kind of goes in one direction. But Kolchak's mm-hmm. reference to an old turkey leg is a nice unintentional shout out to Darren McGavin's role six years later as the old man in A Christmas Story, which we all know Tori has not seen yet as we record. Nope. So Have not. Yeah. So after a lot of runaround, Kolchak manages to get an appointment with Thomas J. Kitzmiller, Vice President of Public Relations at Oceanic International Oil Corporation, or as we're going to start calling it, OIO, because that's easier to say. Actually, that's what they do in the episode, too. They keep saying OIO. So after waiting while Kitzmiller takes a phone call, Kolchak is finally told about how OIO is drilling far into the north, even past Alaska, urged on by several successful new discoveries of oil. OIO has even sent an expedition up past Prince Patrick Island for test drilling at great corporate expense. Kitzmiller explains that they don't just drill for oil hit or miss, though. They drill for cores, and then the scientists examine the cores to determine if they should drill for oil. So this is what Dr. Copanet was doing for the company, examining the cores for materials that have been frozen for thousands, maybe even millions of years. Hardly dangerous work. Well, maybe, Coltec says, but they are an oil company and people have had their fill of high oil prices and environmental damage. 
Kitzmiller says that there are always misguided and sick individuals willing to take out their personal frustrations on blameless institutions. But OIO's contributions to the community welfare are well known, and Dr. Kopanek would be even less of a target, being just a researcher in charge of biology, an area not even important to the geological research needed for oil extraction. But that was the point. OIO provided the opportunity and funding for outside research. Not that OIO would be upset if a biology department were to discover anything that could be profitable for the company outside of its core business. Get it? See what I did there? It's core business. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. I yeah, wrote that. They didn't say that. That's me. I should get a job. Anyway, <laughs> missed opportunity by the scriptwriter. So the biology department <laughs> consisted solely of Dr. Kopanek and his assistant, Dr. Helen Lynch. However, Helen Lynch was in an automobile accident two weeks ago and is recuperating in Springfield, Illinois. And Kiss Miller suggests that they let her do just that. In other words, don't bug her. She's in the hospital. She has nothing to do with this. She's been gone. Then Kiss Miller gives a phone call and then realizing he's not going to get any more useful information from Kiss Miller, Kolchek just like leaves. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So Prince Patrick Island totally sounds fake but it's actually a real island. It's a member of the Arctic Archipelago, and Prince Patrick Island is the westernmost of the Queen Elizabeth Islands in the Northwest Territories of Canada. It's the 55th largest island in the world, and is Canada's 14th largest island, which means Canada has a lot of large islands, but it's inhabited and has historically been icebound all year, making it one of the least accessible parts of Canada. And it is way up there if you look at it on a map, so... Okay. But I totally cool. figured with a name like Prince Patrick, it had to be fake. But no, it's real. No. So, <laughs> yeah. so Kolchik enters the INS office and he tells Vincenzo, who's standing there reading wire copy, that something is definitely going on with his story. And Vincenzo asks if that's the Kopanek story that he started this morning. Jules Kopanek, age 43. And Kolchik's like, yep, I just picked up a copy of the coroner's report. The death was caused by hemorrhaging due to cranial and torso blows. And Vincenzo's like, probably from a blunt object. And Kolchak's like, yes. And then he continues reading the report and he's like, as well as hemorrhaging. And Vincenzo says, probably from a severed right arm, no doubt. And Kolchak's like, yes, that's right. And then he keeps going and he's like, also superficial gouges. And Vincenzo's like, from a garden hand weeder. And Kolchak's like, how do you know that? So Vincenzo tears apart the wire copy and says that every other news agency has already reported it. The story is old cabbage. So Kolchak folds up the report and boldly tells Vincenzo that other news services can have their cabbage because they, the INS, will feast on filet mignon. Mm. Then he asks where Ron is, which is a little suspicious that Kolchak (laughs) even cares. And Vincenzo's like, he's out to lunch. So Kolchak says that goes without saying, but there's definitely something going on at OIO. No one broke in just to murder Kopanek and nothing was stolen. So Ron Updike comes back from lunch and Vincenzo's like, where'd you go for lunch? Saskatoon? Cause like you've been gone for way too long, buddy. Mm-hmm. And Ron says that he had to drive around for a half hour to find a parking space. So Kolchak asks Ron if he found anything on the phone calls that Kolchak asked him to do. And Ron says their deal with the phone calls was that he would make them as long as Kolchak promised not to park in his space anymore which is a deal he's already broken because Ron had to drive around looking for a parking spot because Kolchak was in his spot. So Kolchak apologizes profusely and says it's a very bad habit and he'll do everything he can to break it. And Ron whips out his notebook and he says, yes, you will. Or next time I'm going to call a tow truck. 
And Kolchak's like, you wouldn't really do that. And Ron Updike like doesn't even break eye contact. And he rips up a page from his notepad and he hands it to Kolchak. And he's like, I would. And he walks away and Vincenzo just is watching, kind of shakes his head. So Kolchak grabs his stuff and heads out with the info that Ron gave him. And Vincenzo's like, where are you going? And Kolchak's like, Springfield. And Vincenzo's like, oh, to cover some hot news, like the Lincoln-Douglas debate. And Kolchak stops and then says something. And then Vincenzo leans over the wire and just kind of sighs. He's just like, okay, this is where we are. Yeah. So when I wrote these notes, I was using a crappy pair of headphones because my good headphones broke. I snapped the headband on them and I was waiting for new ones. And I couldn't make out exactly what Kolchak was saying. But you could tell by like his body language and intonation. He was just basically being like rude. Mm-hmm. Like, it turns out I got some new headphones and I checked back and listened. And I'm pretty sure, almost 100% sure that he's actually saying terrific. Like, but still that same vibe of like sarcastic yeah yeah so just keeping everybody up to date on the dialogue so in springfield kolchek is at the hospital where dr helen lynch is recuperating from her accident the first thing we see after the establishing shot of the hospital is a file folder sitting atop the nurse's station that conveniently has all the patient name and room numbers on it one of which reads helen lynch 412 so Kolchak is talking to a doctor and the doctor is telling Kolchak that he cannot go see Lynch because she is not up to dealing with questions about Kopenek's murder. So, of course, Kolchak hasn't totally seen the room she's in or anything like that. And he's like, oh, well, guess I have to leave then if I can't talk to her. So as he's walking away, he's obviously trying to figure out like how he's going to pass the desk and then go to her room because he knows where her room is. And so he's waiting to get on the elevator. Elevator stops. A little tiny woman with a giant fern gets out of the elevator and Kolchak gets on. And then he turns around and he looks and he jumps out of the elevator at the last moment because he realizes what he can do. So he asks the lady if he can carry her fern for her and help her. And she's like, oh, thank you. And he asks what room they're going to. And she's conveniently going to room 415, very close to 412. So with the fern covering his head, the two of them just walk right past the doctor and the nurse's station. So then once he helps the lady, he sneaks into Lynch's room and introduces himself. And she tells him she's already spoken to the police. And he says, that's fine. But the problem with the police is they don't tell anyone else what they learned. And then people start making up their own stories. And she says, OIO public relations called her. And Kolchak is like, and Kiss Miller told you not to talk to the press. And she's like, yes. And he's like, did he tell you why? And she said, because it would be best. So Kolchak appeals to her scientific empiricism asking her if that seems like a valid answer. So she apparently thinks that it doesn't because she then tells Kolchak that Kopanek was a very nice man and their science had true biochemical importance. They had recovered cells from some of the cores and Kolchak asked if that is something that's rare. And she's like, no, but these cells were millions of years old. And when thawed, they began to exhibit biological functions. So after a couple seconds, Kolchak realizes what that means, that they were alive. And he asks what they did. She says they began to reproduce. And he is about to ask how when the doctor walks in. Mm-hmm. And he looks at Kolchak and then he turns around and leans out the door and asks two orderlies to come in. And he tells them, I told this man that he could not enter this room. And yet there he is. <laughs> and so Kolchak kind of nervously smiles and is like, Hey, fellas, and the orderlies approach. 
Yep. So, yep. Kolchak is going to get thrown out of the hospital. So then it's 9.55 p.m. and we're back in Chicago. And photographer Robert Gurney comes home and turns on his TV. The Mummy from 1932 is on the television. And Gurney watches it for a while while he's pouring himself a drink. And as the mummy shuffles across the screen, there's some growls. And you're like, wait, the mummy didn't growl. He just kind of went, mm. he didn't growl, which is weird. But then suddenly behind Gurney, the window explodes and an ape man leaps on him. And again, we freeze frame and we fade out for a commercial. Yep. Uh-oh. Not good. Those growls weren't the mummy. They yeah. were the ape man. By the way, the new mummy, it's not new, but like, I think it was like late 90s, early 2000s with Brendan, Brendan Fraser. Fraser. So good. The movie is just kind of perfect, actually. I don't think I've ever seen the 1932 one. But yeah, that one is just really, really good. I need to watch it again. The one I've seen. I mean, I've seen The Mummy Returns, too. But yeah. Boris Karloff. Yeah. Yeah. So Kolchak's trip to Springfield meant that he actually missed the second beating that just happened in Chicago. And it's the second one in two days. And Vincenzo reminded him of that. And because Kolchak wasn't there, he had to send in a second stringer, quote unquote. So Kolchak arrives and Updike is there and he's like, you missed everything. The police shot the killer and took him away in an ambulance. And Kolchak asked the police officer on duty about the beating. And the officer says he saw the whole thing. It wasn't a beating. The man had his leg nearly torn off. And Kolchak asked for the name of the victim and if he worked for OIO. His name is Robert Gurney and he was a wedding photographer for Macy's. Kolchak asked if the killer worked for OIO. The officer tells him the killer was a gorilla. And Kolchak's like, gorilla? And then Ron leaves and tells him not to take any wooden bananas, which is like a play <laughs> on the phrase, don't take any wooden nickels, you know. Ron is so funny. You know, I mean, I like Ron. I think I'm actually kind of team Ron this episode. We'll get to that. <laughs> but like, yeah, I kind of, I don't know. I kind of like, <laughs> I feel yeah. like in this situation, I would be Ron. So that's maybe why I relate. Oh, uh, maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. The police officer in this scene is the same actor, Vince Howard, who was the police officer in Mr. Ring, to whom Kolchek pretended to be Major Kolchek. When he mm -hmm. walked in and was like, oh, I'm Major Kolchek. So either he doesn't remember Kolchek, which would be almost impossible, you think. So he's probably just supposed to be like some generic cop. Even yeah. Same actor cop, but. Or possibly he knew Kolchek was a reporter the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be, we've talked about like the dates on some of these episodes don't really go in order. Yes. And so it could be that maybe if we were to align things that this would actually happen before Mr. Ring. Who knows? Yeah. So Kolchak enters Gurney's apartment and he finds the landlords, a man and a woman, and they're in their pajamas and robes and they're kind of looking over the damage. And the man is sitting on the couch rubbing his head. They basically live down the hall and the wife said that it could have been their window that was destroyed and her that was murdered. Oh my God. And so then Kolchak asks about the gorilla and she's kind of confused. And she's like, we heard a ruckus. So we called the police. And then when they arrived, we heard a scream and then gunshots. And so she's still kind of confused. She's like, I guess it was a gorilla. But Kolchak's like, what do you mean by butt? And she's like, well, I've seen gorillas on television. And it was like a gorilla, but it stood like a man. So she doesn't really know. But if the police said it was a gorilla, then it must be a gorilla because they're the police and they shot it. So they would know, right? So Kolchak switches off his recorder and is like, yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. The police. Mm. Yeah, because they're always 100% right. <laughs> yeah. 
So Kolchik is outside Kitzmiller's office trying to get past his receptionist. And she says he can't see Mr. Kitzmiller without an appointment. And he says he tried to make an appointment, but she put him on hold for so long that his hair grew over the receiver by the time she came back to tell him that he should call back later. So she's looking through the book and she's like, well, I can offer you an appointment for November 23rd at 10 a.m. So he looks at his watch. He's like, "Mm, November 23rd. She's like, yes. He's like, no. So then he's like, I'm just going to sit here and wait for Kitzmiller. So he sits down on the couch because he's going to wait for him to come out of his office if he's in there or is going for him to come into it because he's not in there. And she's like, he's in a meeting. So then Kolchak is like, well, maybe I should be at this meeting too. And he just goes over and opens Kitzmiller's door. But the office is empty. His meeting is at a restaurant. So her phone begins ringing and Kolchak, Kolchak hovers over her trying to hear the calls. The first is a Dr. Arscott who was supposed to have been picked up at the airport. And she tells him like, well, we did send someone, but let me check. And then another call comes in and it's someone named Bernice and something has apparently happened. So she tells Bernice that Kitzmiller is with her boss. And so she can reach him there. And she goes back to Dr. R. Scott and tells him that she's not really able to speak right now because Kolchik is just like he's like, literally like over. right over her shoulder. Like he's yeah. hovering right yeah. over her trying to hear. Yeah. So and that yeah. she will have Mr. Kissmiller call him. So Kolchik is like, who's Dr. Oscott? And then she stands up and she's way taller than Kolchik. So he's and it kind of catches him off guard. He's like, oh, and she says she's sorry, but she can't help him. And she doesn't understand why he believes Mr. Kitzmiller is hiding something. He is simply very busy. After all, he is a vice president. And Kolchak says, that's what he's worried about. Some of our biggest problems lately have come from vice presidents. And then he takes his leave. And after the door closes, she immediately picks up the phone and she dials it to talk to someone. Right. So this scene really isn't a great look for Kolchak. He's basically like, harassing the receptionist and definitely like invading her personal space. Mm-hmm. At one point, it looks like he might be smelling her hair. He could definitely <laughs> be looking down her shirt if he wanted to. So no, yeah, I thought he was there. just trying to hear the phone, but yeah, it's, no, he it's... was. But it did look like at one point, like he might have been sniffing. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you know, maybe Darren McGann was like, "Oh, she smells nice," and then I got okay, I get back in the scene. I don't know, but it was kind of nice for her to turn the tables on him, sort of do like yeah. intimidated height. But yeah, it was it was not a good look for (laughs) she is super attractive and super tall and she's a redhead. So I'm on board with that. But he was being a total creep in this scene. (laughs) So Yeah. Yeah. So standing outside a bank of elevators, Kolchak's just kind of waiting. And when a group of both uniformed and plainclothes officers enter through a security door, Kolchak slips in behind them. And he He's follow- good at doing that. He is very good at doing that. I mean, He's honestly, really in by, by just, door. you know, I mean, that's how you do it. You act confident. You just hang out. And then when someone opens the door, you just act like you're with the group. You're supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he follows them into the lab where Copperneck was killed. And inside, Captain Molnar is looking at a shattered window. And Kolchak asks what's going on. And Molnar says, merely property damage at the scene of a crime. And Kolchak asks if he can see the dead ape man. And Molnar's like, I have no idea about any dead ape man. And Kolchak basically asks if the killer was a gorilla, why are the cops still investigating it? And Molnar says, because of experience. And he walks Kolchik out the door, and as he closes the door, he says he has a lot of experience working with baboons. And it takes him a second, and then Kolchik, like, 
realizes that that was a dig at him. So (laughs) then it's November 10th at 10.25 p.m. A butcher is unloading a leg of beef from a delivery truck. The truck's driver, William Pratt, according to Kolchak's voiceover, enters the back of the truck to help unload. From above, we see the eight man on a fire escape nearby and he's eyeing the meat truck. And then the eight man leaps down and enters the truck. We hear a struggle and then the body of William Pratt flies out of the truck and through the window of the building that's facing the back of the truck. And the butcher runs out and looks at the window and then into the truck and his eyes grow wide. Whoa. Yeah, it's not not good. Yeah. (laughs) And earlier I mentioned Boris Karloff. William Pratt is the birth name of Boris Karloff, who played Amel Garner Things, the mummy in 1932's The Mummy. You might have heard of a little movie called Frankenstein. He was in that too. But yeah. So one of the iconic Universal Monsters. And Colchek the Night Stalker was filmed mostly at Universal Studios. So nice, nice. There you go. Yeah. So Colchek arrives at the back of the meat shop, and there are police cars everywhere in the alley because obviously the back of the shop is like in an alley, and so there's cars everywhere. Truck is still there, right? And then suddenly, as Colchek is approaching, the ape man like runs out of the alley and right at Colchek and then past him. But Colchek does manage to snap a picture of him. Click. And flash, uh, and then two police officers like run past Kolchak after the eight man. So as Kolchak approaches the crime scene, an officer is walking away with the butcher, and then we see Molnar is arguing with two uniformed and badged men holding rifles, but they aren't cops. And they tell him, "You cannot know how every animal will react to tranquilizers," and they were only doing what he said because Molnar told them that he wanted it alive. They say he heard it in that truck and the way it was raging, if they had shot it with too high a dosage, it could have dropped dead right there. So there must be like animal control officers or something, I'm guessing. Yeah. Or maybe they're like, they work at the zoo. Who knows? So as they leave, Kolchak follows them and try to get some info. They obviously know what's going on. And he knows he's not going to get any information from Molnar. So I'll talk to these guys. So they say they don't know what the kind of animal it was because it was too dark. But they shot it with six darts and it still was able to run away. They also say that Kolchak was nuts to flash his camera right in its face when it ran by. It could have torn him apart. And then as they're talking, Molnar has been approaching and he grabs the track of Kolchak's camera off his shoulder. And so the camera falls and hits the ground. So Kolchak instinctively goes to pick up his camera, but then Molnar steps on it and like twists his foot and you hear this crunching sound. And so Kolchak stands back up and him and Molnar just lock eyes. Mm-hmm. Because Molnar just wrecked his camera and probably his film. Yep. Mm, mm, mm. (laughs) So in the halls of police headquarters, Kolchak is yelling at Molnar. Basically yelling because Molnar ruined his camera and he ruined his film and he had pictures of the creature. So he ruined those. Molnar says it was an accident, which obviously we know it wasn't. So Kolchak says that Molnar owes him and so he wants to see pictures of the eight man they shot. And Molnar's like, you're right, Kolchek. We do owe you. And so he tells Kolchek to submit a voucher for his camera and the police department will reimburse him. And Kolchek tells Molnar they both know it isn't just some ape out there. Kopanek was working on some cells recovered from an Arctic core that are millions of years old and they started growing and developing. And he believes that the OIO is growing these ape creatures. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. Molnar tells Kolchak to put in his voucher and shut up. And then he goes into the squad room and he closes the door. Hmm. 
maybe Kolchak hit a nerve there. Yeah. So frustrated, Kolchak goes over to the coffee machine in the hall, but he doesn't have enough money on hand for it. And then Molnar's office is actually next to the machine and across from the squad room. So when the coast is clear, Kolchak slips into the office. So in Molnar's office, Kolchak has the file drawer EFG open and is looking through the folder, probably looking for Gurney's file. Mm-hmm. And he finds some info that he seems really excited about. So he takes the information out and then puts the folder back empty. And he folds up the stuff he took and he starts to put it in his coat pocket, but then he hesitates. And then outside Molnar's office, Kolchak is sneaking out and he's like carefully closing the door. And then he bumps into the back of Molnar, who is outside talking to someone. So Molnar turns around and Kolchak's like, oh, uh, I put the voucher on your desk. And Molnar pulls him aside and he like frisks him to make sure he hasn't taken anything. He doesn't find anything. And so then an indignant Kolchak says he expects immediate payment and leaves. And then once he's watched Kolchak completely leave, Molnar goes into his office and sits down at his desk. And he picks up Kolchak's voucher and he opens a desk drawer and he reads the voucher, which is for $125, folds it in half and drops it into the trash can next to his desk. Yeah, and I did not check to see what $125 was in 2021 dollars. I usually do that, and I actually forgot. Whoops. Yeah, but we do have a commercial, so the death of his voucher, commercial time. There we go. We got a death. (laughs) The death of any chance of Kolchak getting repaid for his camera. That's That's right. So, yeah. yeah. So we're back in Springfield at the hospital, and Kitzmiller and then two scientists are in Dr. Lynch's room. And she tells him about the cells that she and Kopanek were working on. Meanwhile, outside, Kolchak is in a wheelchair and he's like wearing a hospital gown over his clothes and he's got a blanket on his lap that's hiding his hat and all his gear. He's wheeling up to the room and he just kind of like parks his wheelchair outside the room. And then he listens from outside. So Lynch tells the two scientists that they had planned to publish their work and had finished their first battery of tests on the cells in time for Kopanek to go to Helsinki. So they just shut everything down and they sealed the cells in vacuum containers in the freezer. But then a week later, she was in an accident, and that's why she's in the hospital. So the two scientists are like, <sighs> and she's like, what's wrong? And they tell her that the freezing unit broke about three weeks ago. So basically, like right after her accident, the freezing unit broke. So she has no idea that all that stuff is not frozen. And then we cut to outside and we see that Kolchak is recording through the door. So it must, <laughs> he must have a good mic on that thing, but he's like, yeah. Kind of going. yeah. So inside, Kitzmiller says he doesn't see what the point of this is. He says he can handle any PR. $5 gas prices, no problem. The San Francisco Bay turned into a giant tar pit from an oil spill, no problem. But he has no idea what he's supposed to say about some germs that supposedly grew into an ape man and is going around killing people. And the scientists say that there's no precedent for what is happening. And Kitzmiller says there's no precedent for anything that has happened. And they need to tell him something that is useful so he can do his job. So in the hallway, the doctor that Kolchak had been talking to before calls out thinking he's another patient. Like, hey, Mr. Whatever, are you okay? And then through the door, we hear Kitzmiller saying that he'll make whatever calls are necessary and is going to have Lynch move to a private facility to avoid having to answer any questions from the press or the police. And the doctor starts walking up to Kolchak to check on him. And so Kolchak like, gets up and like runs. And the doctor yeah. follows him. Yeah. And then back inside the room, 
Back inside the room, Kitz Miller says that no one is to say anything about any of this. And then he leaves. And as he leaves, he like trips over, like, because Kolchik just left his wheelchair there right in front of the door. Uh-huh. So he like, stumbles over it and leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, Kolchik. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Always some scheme. Always some scheme. So at the INS offices, Vincenzo is holding a creased photo of the dead ape man that killed Robert Kearney. And he's smiling. He sets the photos down and claps and rubs his hands together. Kolchak is standing over the wire printouts and Vincenzo asks if it's come across yet. And Kolchak tells him to relax. New York is just getting the first paragraph right now. And Vincenzo's really actually happy. Like they're both excited. He's mm-hmm. uncharacteristically like happy about this story and he can't believe they got it. And, you know, the story is primitive man in our own time. He has to admit Kolchak is quite a reporter. And Kolchak's like, are you feeling okay? Do you have a fever or something? Because Vincenzo like never compliments him. And Vincenzo's like, we're going to need a film crew. Kolchak is undoubtedly going to be a guest on a news channel. And Kolchak refuses. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to go on TV. And the story comes over the wire. And Kolchak grabs it to read it. And it says, cancel story. Legal department will contact. And so Vincenzo's like, what? This has to be a mistake. And Kolchak asks if the INS has been undermined by the OIO2. And Vincenzo says he's been trying to get on the phone with HQ all day, but the lines are tied up. So as they head into Vincenzo's office, Ron interrupts and says he has some news about the eight-man story that may blow the lid right off it. He says he got a call from a friend of his at the Herald. Two days ago, a truck that was carrying illegal animals overturned. The driver just came forward. Several animals escaped, including two large apes, a pair of African gibbons, Malay tiger, a civet cat, and a picost. And Vincenzo's like, what's a picost? And Ron is like, about 89 cents. And starts laughing at his own joke. And Vincenzo obviously doesn't think it's funny, but Kolchak starts laughing too. He waited a long time for that setup. That's a big setup for that joke. Yes, it is. He had been planning that for quite some time. Yeah. So Vincenzo says he's going to call New York and tells Kolchak to ignore Updike and keep on the story. So Kolchak, still laughing, tells Updike that was terrible. And Updike's like, maybe you'll like my second joke. Kolchak parked in his spot again. So he called the tow truck and they should be towing his Mustang away right about now. And Kolchak puts his hand on Ron's shoulder and he's like, no, no, I believed you when you said you would do that if it happened again. So five minutes ago, I had the janitor take the keys out of your jacket and go move my car and put your car in your spot. So what Kolchak, a nice thing to do. He's giving Ron his spot back. That's, yeah, that's nice. I'm uh, glad Kolchek is coming around. He's trying yeah, to be a good guy. I don't He's I don't think to be a good guy. I don't think that's what's happening. So Kolchek heads to Vincenzo's office for the call to New York and Updike runs out the window and he shouts down into the street as he sees his car being towed. And so Kolchak smiles and Vincenzo has the operator break into the line to New York because it's an emergency and Ron closes the window. Yeah. Yeah. I actually feel really bad for Ron. I think Kolchak's kind of being a douchebag here because like, (laughs) I mean, first of all, he's always parking in Ron's spot, which, you know, like I don't know if Ron earned that spot or pays for it. I was going to say, how come Kolchak doesn't have a spot? Probably Ron has a spot, but Kolchak doesn't. I'm going to bet that Ron pays for it or earned it in some way. And Kolchak keeps taking his spot. So Ron warns him. He Like, he didn't have to warn him. He could just have his car towed. But he does give him a heads up. He's like, next time we do this, I'm going to tow your car. 
and Kolchak arranges it so that Ron tows his own car. I don't know. I just think it's kind of a dick move, to be yeah, honest. But how would but how would Kolchak know that Ron called the tow truck? Oh, he knew. That's exactly I think, why. I think just out of the goodness of his heart, he was no, like, you know what? Uh-uh. I did wrong. Nope. I'm going to go have the janitor fix this error so that Ron doesn't have to walk a long distance to his car. No, nope, no way in hell. He absolutely You're knew. It. You're not buying no, it. No, okay. no. He was yeah. being... And, you know, I mean... It's fine, but it's just a dick move. I feel bad for Ron because, like, I don't know. Like, if someone, if I had a space and someone was parking my space, I would be pissed too. Like, I don't like it when people do stuff like that. <laughs> like, that's my space. I need to, like, I, I live in an apartment building. If someone's parking in my space and I couldn't park here and I had to, like, go drive around and find a place to park, I'd be furious. I'm paying for that spot. So it's mine. Keep your car out of it. <laughs> I do kind of feel obligated because since this is the seventies, I feel like sometimes we say things in here and like, you probably know, I know I definitely know. Cause I was alive back then, but like things obviously work different. Oh, for sure. So like Tony is going to have the operator break in on the line to New York because it's an emergency. So like, it's a busy signal, but like back in the day, like there were operators and they would just like, they could actually like interrupt the line and tell you that like someone is really trying to get through. So you could be talking on the phone and then suddenly, like, someone could just interrupt your phone line because it was an emergency. Right. So, yeah. Just, I don't know how many people actually know about that. So, Because when you used to dial zero, you actually got a person. Yeah, like, it was weird. Yeah. And sometimes you would actually have to dial zero to have that person place the call for you. That actually happens in Kolchik a lot. He has the operator dial the call for him because that's the only way to do it sometimes. So, weird. Yeah. Very weird. 70s were a weird time. <laughs> anyway, we cut to a young woman who is walking down the street alone at night. And she looks a little nervous. And then a man approaches her. And you can tell she's kind of like, oh, I'm a woman by myself. And this man's walking by. But, like, he passes. They go different ways. He does kind of turn around and take a second look at her because she's a nice-looking lady. But, you know, everything's fine. And she continues to the bench of a bus stop. And she kind of just standing there and is waiting. And then we get Kolchak's narration. And it's November 11th at 9.30 p.m. The lady that we see is Rosetta Mason. She's 22, and she had been at a party, but she had gotten bored. But unfortunately, Rosetta did not know that for her, the party was really over. Because then an ape-man runs up from behind and throws her to the ground as she screams, and the ape-man is standing over her, and we cut to commercial. Oh, aww. Yeah. She so, literally died of boredom. <laughs> so Kolchik says the murder of Rosetta Mason gave the police no new information, but it did give Kolchik a footprint. He called all the major universities to speak to the anthropology departments, but was basically just put on hold. And he recognizes this is the calling card of the OIO. And he realizes that private universities may be withholding to corporate donations but public schools are still public. So Kolchak enters the classroom of high school biology teacher, Jack Burton. And Kolchak asks him if he heard about the murders and Burton says several of his friends have been consulted, all the PhDs. Kolchak asks if he knows who they've been talking to and Burton doesn't. And he's like, they're all very clicky and hush hush. No one wants to talk to a lowly high school teacher. So Kolchak announces that Burton is now being consulted and he hands him a photograph of a footprint from the so-called ape. 
And Burton looks at it and he's amazed and he's like, so-called ape is correct because it doesn't have prehensile toes like a true ape, but the arch and the heel construction aren't human either. Mm-hmm. So Kolchak says, well, is it an ape man? And Burton says, that's a misnomer. It's ignorance about evolution. Man did not evolve from apes. Men and apes evolved from the same common ancestor. It's not a single line, but more like branches of a tree. So Kolchak mentions that it likely came from the Arctic, and Burton says it could be anything. The only thing we know about the Arctic is that it froze. So basically, we don't know what might have evolved up there, what kind of different Mm. things, branches from the tree might have been up there. And if it is a meat-eating ancient predecessor of humans, then it would be a nocturnal hunter and likely a cave dweller. Kolchak agrees about the nocturnal hunter part because the creature has only been sighted at night, but he's less thrilled about the idea of caves in Chicago because there really aren't any. Yeah. Well, we know there's more than one creature now, though. Oh, right. Because they shot one. Oh, you're right. Yes. Sorry. I was thinking there was only one, but yeah, they did shoot one. So I watched this late at night. I shouldn't do that (laughs) because my brain kind of... That's fine. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter for that. I just I thought you corrected it because you were like, oh, I made a typo, but it actually was creature. You're right. There is yeah. more than one because there would have to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe this is like TMI section, but I actually have semi prehensile feet. I can pick things up pretty well, but sadly, I do lack true grasping ability. Like I couldn't like hang from a branch or something. But, yeah. Cause my toe, my toes are pretty long, and my big toes are really splayed, like heavily splayed, and I have huge calluses on my big toes from them constantly rubbing against my size fourteen shoes. So I have big feet, and my toes are splayed, and I live in the Pacific Northwest, um, which is why I usually don't go outside. So yeah, I do realize that a lot of people have suffered, but for me, this pandemic has been glorious because I haven't had to wear shoes. I haven't had to go outside and I haven't had to see other people. So I'm kind of happy. I mean, it hasn't been glorious for me, but I do have to say there's something nice about not having to deal with other people all the time and to not have to yeah, wear. I'm not dodging like, Bigfoot hunters trying to shoot me. It's awesome. Yeah, so, I can see how that yeah. would be a problem. By the way, Burton is played by Jamie Farr, who is famous for his role as Maxwell Klinger on MASH. Mm-hmm. And he was also on The Love Boat. And he also had appearances on shows like I Dream of Jeannie, Mad About You, Diagnosis Murder. If you look at his IMDb, he's been on many, many things, but you probably will immediately recognize him as one of the people from MASH, yep. or at least I Cleaner. did. Yeah. Yep. The Love Boat, though, you say, hmm, I wonder if that might come up in the future. I don't see how. <laughs> no. I don't. It no. could. <laughs> it could, for sure. It, mm, I it don't might. know. I'm looking at my, looking at my crystal ball. So maybe, <laughs> but speaking of nocturnal hunters, Kolchek enters the OIO lab from outside by prying off one of the boards covering the broken windows at night since security detail at the entrances have been doubled. Not sure why they wouldn't have security detail around the whole building, not just at the doors, but oh well, you know. So inside the freezer, all the containers that he saw before are gone. Uh-oh. But there is still one at a table, but it's sitting under, it looks like it's a heat lamp that it's sitting under and it's wrapped in like a heating coil. Like someone is trying to keep it warm. Mm. That seems odd. Yeah. So Kolchak manages to get the lid off it and he looks inside. It's not nice. Um, It's something that could possibly be a developing fetus inside the liquid. So, mm. 
but he takes some photos and then he hears footsteps approaching. So he heads back through the window and he manages to get out just before the two scientists from Lynch's hospital room come in. They got lab coats on now. And then another man and a woman, both in dark suits, they all burst into the room and look around and then they go to the window and look, but Kolchak mm-hmm. got away. Yeah. So based on one of the guys in the suits, he's carrying like a cup of coffee. I'm going to guess that they're probably just a guy and a lady who were actually working at OIO as opposed to being like Los Federales or MIB or something like that. Who knows? So, yeah. So as Kolchak parks his car in the dark, his voiceover tells us that he's getting front page copy, but an embryo didn't attack and kill those victims. A full-grown ape man did. And Kolchak needs to get a photo of it. He tells us there are no caves in Chicago, but all the attacks happened roughly within a mile radius of the OIO lab. And also within that radius used to stand Chicago Stadium. The stadium's now gone, but the tunnels that ran under it, where the very first test of the Manhattan Project took place, still exist. So Colchick goes to his trunk. He's got a crowbar and a flashlight. He's got a bunch of flares. He goes over and he manages to bust open a graffitied entrance. And he goes in and immediately like, ah, falls down an incline into the dark tunnels. So he lights a few flares and he throws them into the tunnel ahead of him to light the area. And then he's walking with his flashlight and it's all orange in there from the light of the flares. And he progresses into the tunnels. And he finds a tuft of hair stuck to some jutting pieces of wood covering a side tunnel. So he pulls the hair and he's like, ooh. And he looks. And then he flashes his flashlight at the opening. And like a bunch of bats fly out. Woo, and they scare the crap out of him. So he runs and he trips and he falls. And as he falls, his flashlight shines upon a woman's shoe. Oh. So he lights another flare and he throws it into the tunnel. And it almost hits the body of a woman on the ground. So it lights it up. And so he goes over to the body and he turns it over and it's Rosetta Mason. She's dead. Yeah. I have to say, when this scene started, I thought he was holding sticks of dynamite for some reason. Oh. And so I was like, oh God, he's going to blow himself up. <laughs> he's going to blow himself up. This is not going to be good. And then I realized they were flares. But for some reason, at first, I was just like, oh, he's got I mean, dynamite. This is going to end they, up. Yeah, I mean, they got, little, they got little caps on them, like little blasting caps, right? They're the same color. They're almost the same. Yeah, yeah. I can so, see that. It's like, oh, no, yeah. dynamite. But then I realized they were flares. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. That makes a little more sense. Although he doesn't I mean- have a cool, he doesn't have a cool flare gun that he could shoot like a asparagus monster or something. <laughs> oh my but, gosh! You know. One of the new <laughs> trading cards I got. I just bought a bunch of X Files trading cards, the, like the unopened packs, because I'm a nerd. And one of the ones I got from season two is this one of like Bradley Whitford just looking really, really grimy, and I think he's like holding Jesse's body or something. Oh, it's like the a- end when they're walking through the. Yeah, but like, well, he's kind of like next to her. I don't know. It's kind of a weird photo. It looks like the one with Scully and Jesse, where it like wasn't actually in the show. Oh, it's just like a that's like like a a Um, promo. But like, yeah, I just thought it was, and I was like, (laughs) it's a weird image for a trading card. It's just like grimy Bradley Whitford. I was like, all right, whatever. Well, like I said, I think he looked better as like yeah, you know. But I love I love Josh Lyman so much that like usually he's clean cut and in a suit and stuff. So it's just weird to see him all grimy. Oh, anyway, it's fine. Yeah. So he sees the body of Rosetta Mason, 
sees that she's dead, mm-hmm. and then he hears some noises. So he starts to look around. He looks in front of him. And he looks behind him. And then from around the corner, ahead of him, here comes an ape man. So Kolchak just runs. And the creature follows him, but it's Kolchak, right? So you know what he does. He turns around and he takes a picture of the creature. Of course. And it flashes and it just pisses the creature off. And so it catches him and it throws him against the wall. But then Kolchak manages to light another flare and he holds it out and the creature kind of hesitates probably afraid of the flare right so it kind of rocks back and forth a little bit like trying to figure out what it's going to do and then cold check starts talking to it like hey you know this is fire it'll burn you whoa be careful but like you know calm down i don't i'm not gonna hurt you just like calm down calm down it's good you know everything's fine and it actually seems to be working the creature seems to be calming down yeah but then cold check hears some shouting and he goes to look so he breaks eye contact with the creature and the creature just like raw just lunges at him when he breaks eye contact and attacks Kolchek. So Kolchek is trying to fight off the creature and then he looks to the side and he sees that Mulder and four of the animal control officers are approaching. So he cries out to them and he's trying to fight the creature and then he sees and the men just pull up their rifles and boom they start firing. And then Kolchek's vision starts blurring. I think he might have got hit with a trank dart. I think so. And, yeah. Yeah. And so like the camera, we get some nice German askew angles and then it gets blurry and he sees Molnar and the men approaching with their flashlights and his vision dims and then it fades to black and we go to commercial. It's kind of slow-mo too, a little bit. Like it's kind yeah. of like, I think, yeah, I think it's supposed to indicate that he got hit with a dart. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah. dear. So then the show comes back and we see Kolchak is back where he started when the episode began. And the stone wall is the wall of the tunnels and obviously the bloody scratches on his face are from the creature. Yeah. And he tells us, the police and the high-priced scientific help put it together just as I did. With the proper dosage of tranquilizer, the creature became manageable. That's a great word, isn't it? Manageable. They took it, or should I say him, a few moments ago. He's going to be tested, studied, probed, I imagine. Captain Molnar took my camera, again, saying that I was unmanageable. But I want to sue to get it back, and I promised myself that. And if I do, and I do get it back, and if Vincenzo will publish the story, and you see the pictures, they may not be too good. They may be blurry. (laughs) They may be titillating and not convincing. You might not really want to believe them, but you go ahead, you believe them, and ask yourself, what happened to him, to it? Will he thrive in our hands? Is he that much like us? Will they be able to make him manageable? And then Kolchak turns off his recorder, and he gets up, and he brushes himself off a bit, and he goes to find the exit of the tunnels. That's the end. That's the end. We get the end credit sequence. Yep. Let Tori have the closing narration. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was my audition for Lady Kolchek. I hope that we can <laughs> Lady <no>. Kolchek. <laughs> the new reboot. The, new reboot. <laughs> so the creature totally reminds me of like an adult version of Chaka from Land of the Lost. Which actually I was looking up. I knew it was in the 70s. I knew I watched it when I was a kid on Saturday mornings. It actually debuted on Saturday, September 7th, 1974 which Kolchak debuted on Friday, September 13th, 1994. So it's like debuted like the same time. Oh, wow. And it ran all the way through December 4th, 1976. So I'm pretty sure I probably saw like every episode when I was a kid. So 
Also, as a grown ass man, I really want some modern sleaze stack action figures. I am. I don't know why. I've always been obsessed with the sleaze stacks. I don't know why. Hmm. But yeah, there was one thing that I wasn't sure where it fit to talk about it, so I figured I'd just save it for the end. But when he is talking about having gotten the footprint, he mentions that the murder of Rosetta Mason didn't give the police any new information, but it did give him the footprint against the crime scene. But then he finds her body in the tunnel. So it couldn't have been a murder case. It had to have been, if anything, it was just a missing persons case because there was no body. Right. Like They wouldn't have known that she was a victim of the eight man unless there was like, I mean, I guess there was the footprints, but still, we didn't know that at the time, of course. It wasn't like something you could see at the moment, but hindsight, you're like, oh, that's probably a goof. I don't know, but. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you could argue that like Kolchak knows now. And so with the narration that he's giving us in the tunnels on his reporter, he knows it was a murder. So maybe it was like an attack in a missing person's case. And he's calling it a murder now because in hindsight, he knows but that's kind of me yeah. doing my or in-universe also, explanation when really maybe it was just a mistake. I mean, also, if he got the footprint from there, he would be like, oh, she was totally a victim of the eight man. And the cops were like, we don't know what happened here. Right. She's a missing person. Because so. remember in the Night Stalker, he pretty much assumed that the one lady was a victim of Viano Scorsese. Mm-hmm. But everyone else was like, we don't know. She's just missing. He was like, no, look at what happened to her dog. He, she obviously was a victim. So... Yeah. yeah, so I guess he puts the pieces together. That just kind of caught me because he's like the murder. I'm like, but then he finds her body. So would they have known it was a murder? Right. I guess maybe I'm thinking like a cop and not thinking like a cold check, which is scary. But, <laughs> yeah, don't do yeah. that. Don't do that. Yeah. But yeah, Chaka. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen Land of the Lost. I think I might have uh, seen a couple episodes of like the newer version. But I don't yeah, remember I when think, that was. I think there was a newer version of the TV show, but then Will Ferrell did do a movie. I might have seen it, that. Like in like 97, 98, yeah. 99. The stacks look, actually Chaka looks about the same too. I mean, it's better technology, but they. I haven't seen the movie. I've only seen like photos of it. They look pretty close, I guess. I don't know if the plot's anywhere near the same. The stacks look pretty pretty equivalent they just look you know it's, it's a better costume yeah so yeah i may have seen yeah. that i don't know for sure sounds familiar i mean i know what land of the lost is i've seen like pictures of it and stuff so i don't know but yeah and there was like i think i told you this yesterday when we were recording the x-files but there was a movie on the new mystery science theater i think it was during the gauntlet series that they did that was like kickstarter funded there was this movie about a dinosaur that they had like found in the ice and the freezer in the facility breaks or gets shut off or something. And so like the dinosaur thaws out. And so it's kind of a similar setup for the movie. That movie's kind of bad. That's why it's on mystery science theater. But yeah, I just, I also mentioned to you yesterday, and this is going to be weird for people listening because we are recording this stuff out of order, but listeners will have listened to our episode about Scooby-Doo by this time where there is a frozen caveman However, Tori has not seen that episode yet. I have not. So you cannot make any references to it because no, she hasn't seen it. I have not. But, so yeah, that's but what you we guys get. will actually hear that before <laughs> you hear this one. So yeah, yeah. But I think that's a common, common little trope, especially in the seventies. And then like 
Speaking of Brendan Fraser, wasn't there that movie Encino Man oh, yeah. where he yeah. was like found in the ice and like mm, by yeah. Polly Shore? Yeah, I loved that movie when I was a kid. I definitely. Oh yeah, I saw it. I saw it, I saw it in the theater. I think I, I did too. Worked. I think I was working in the theater when it came out. Actually. Oh nice. So. Yeah, me and my brothers used to love going to movies. That was Brendan so. Fraser's first movie. Oh you yeah. Talking about the mummy, bringing it back around. Look at you. Yeah, Ooh. Brendan Fraser is great. I love him so much. He is. I've just... never seen that mummy movie yeah it's good it's really good it just hits all the right like it's funny enough but then it's also like danger you know like it's just a really good mix of that and it's well cast everyone in the movie is great like the whole movie it's just a a delight in it right yeah i think so and it's just it's great it's a delight it's really fun to watch the rock's not in the first one though right i don't think so i think he might be in this he's like in second, the and then king he's the scorpion right? king yeah he might just be the scorpion yeah. king he might have an appearance in the second one like at the end is like i don't know how many there are so i don't either I i've only seen the okay. first two and i think maybe i saw the scorpion king one but i don't think i paid that much attention because at that point i was like i don't care that much but like the first movie is really good so i really enjoyed that one Okay. And Brendan Fraser's great. He's also one of the best like arcs on Scrubs is Brendan Fraser. And it's just like oh, he's just amazing. Anyway, I'll start crying if I talk about those episodes, though. It's really sad. <sighs> Did you ever see George of the Jungle? Yeah, I did. I wasn't a huge fan okay. of that one, but it was funny. It was good. I never saw I never saw that one either. Yeah, it was it's a very female gaze movie. Wasn't he? Which is fun. Did he do so George of the Jungle? Did Brendan Fraser do a Dudley Do Right movie too? You know, I think maybe he did. I don't think I've seen it, but I can picture him in like so the Canadian Mountie uniform. Like, yeah, he was just hitting those characters. Yeah, yeah, he did a lot of stuff. And then he got like, I can't remember why he stopped acting for a little bit. And I think now he's coming back into it. But he did take a break for a little bit. I think he was also yeah, assaulted in some way. And stopped and then for that reason the jungle. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he's great. Brendan Fraser is just awesome. So now that we're super off topic. <laughs> Hey. This is a Brendan Fraser fan club podcast, or at least <laughs> I, maybe I'll start a Brendan Fraser fan club podcast. Okay. <laughs> and my P1 already, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty, pretty big fan of that guy. But as for this episode, I mean, this episode, I feel bad because this is what I said about the last two. And I, I've already watched the next one. I feel differently. But like this one, I feel like, again, it's just very run of the mill. It's very like, here's the setup. Here's the story. This is exactly what you saw, which is not a bad thing. Like, it's good to be predictable in some way because like you tune in, you know what you're getting. But I just like wasn't, I don't know, this episode was, it was fine. It just didn't really, I don't know. It didn't excite me in any way, I guess, if that makes sense. Okay. I don't know. I think well, I'm where just... does it fall on your score then? Yeah, I don't know because I'm kind of thinking it's. <sighs> I don't know. It's hard because like I'm thinking of the next one too, and so like I'm trying to figure out where that should go. Just in relation, I think it's a five. I think it's okay. pretty. Yeah, middle of the road for me. Let's see. I think hmm, hmm. I think I'm gonna go with a six. Okay. I was thinking seven, but 
like if it had been like the Scooby-Doo episode, which I realized at this moment you haven't seen, but everyone mm-hmm. else will have listened to and you will have seen by the time this comes out. <laughs> like that one is a thaw out an actual caveman. Like it's the whole body and it thaws out, mm-hmm. right? It's not like cells growing. And so like, I'm more willing to accept that than I am like the whole like cells spontaneously growing into a whole creature. And then like that, I'm kind of like, oh, that's a little much. That's a little much for me to take. Just because like, you know, like the whole clone thing, like you grow in clones and like, okay, fine, you can grow clones, but how are you making them age so fast? Like, I don't, that's where I have trouble with cloning. And when people have like a bunch of clones, like they still have to age to get to a certain growth state. So unless you're using some kind of crazy growth accelerant, but I don't know about that. So who would want that? Because man, imagine if you actually like stabbed yourself with that while you were working on the clones and you like became an old person. That's an actual interesting premise for a TV show. Then you transfer your consciousness into another clone. Oh, like the bad well, guy on She-Ra. I mean, assuming you could do that, or yeah. like the Venture Brothers. Yeah. Sorry, spoiler. If you've only just started watching the Venture Brothers. I've never anyway, seen the Venture Brothers. Uh, oh well, then I just spoiled it for you. Um, you've never seen the Venture Brothers. No. <laughs> Tori. Tori. Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Tori. Oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. So yeah. So a five from Tori and a six from Nick and. And yeah, and I was gonna say like that the dinosaur. List of things that Tori is gonna have to watch is growing and growing and growing and growing. Uh. That dinosaur movie, like it was a whole dinosaur fossil too that like woke up when it thought so it was okay, like cells so of a dinosaur. Okay. It was like, you know, whole, yeah. I mean, although that movie was not that great, although Mystery Science Theater makes everything better because it's fun. Like us. Yeah. Sort yeah. of. Yes. Sort of. All right. I'm smiling that's in probably, that way. You can't see. That's but... probably the best thing we could say to end this. So, all right. Cool. Yeah. Catch you guys next time. Dun, dun, dun. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch episode 14 of Kolchek the Night Stalker. The Trevi Collection. And try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. there.
I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Episode production design and editing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no, don't choke. <coughs> mm, I think my throat is just like, I'm tired. All right. <laughs>